Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent, only in theaters May 17th. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school, you're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Good morning, peeps, and welcome to Woke AF Daily with me, your girl, Danielle Moody, live from my Long Island bunker. As I have been saying, we are running a two-for-one special. So when you subscribe to my podcast, PM Mood, where I talk to innovators, changemakers, artists, activists, and folks about how they're utilizing their social platform to increase their social good, you get Woke AF Daily for free. Share it with your friends. Tell folks. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Happy Fuck It Friday to all of you. There is a lot to say fuck it to today. And I am going to begin with one of my favorite fuck it targets, which is Moscow McTrader. Speaker, leader, turtle looker, Mitch McConnell. Now, why? Why am I going after Mitch McConnell? on this particular fuck it Friday because he is a piece of trash. So in Governor Cuomo's daily briefing that he provided yesterday, he mentioned the fact that Mitch McConnell has referred to providing states, very hard hit states with the coronavirus as a quote, blue state bailout. So it has become crystal clear that Republicans are just fucking evil, right? And Mitch McConnell, with his turtle fucking face, is the leader of that evil. How you look at this country through a prism, through the perspective of just blue or red, and not one country that you can decide and pick and choose who you care about and who you don't and who, by virtue of your statement of stop blue state bailouts, are willing to sacrifice, which are Democrats. So essentially, Republicans no longer, 
And I want this to be made fucking clear. Do not ever refer to the Republican Party as a pro-life party. They are a pro-power party, and they are a pro-whiteness party, and they are pro-nationalist, but they are not pro-life. They don't give a fuck about you, about your loved ones, about first responders, about healthcare workers, about any goddamn person. Unless you are making them money or giving them money, they don't give a fuck. Mitch McConnell is trash. Donald Trump, fucking trash. You know, one of the questions that I keep asking myself as we are moving further and further into this crisis and understanding, folks, you know, once Germany on Angela Merkel decided to cancel Oktoberfest, you know, that takes place in October in the fall, it should ring true for all of us that what we are doing right now, this sheltering in place, this flattening of the curve, this social distancing, this is the year. And if we're looking at history as our guide in terms of the Spanish flu and other pandemics, you're talking about two years. We were told by Dr. Fauci and other researchers and other, and other medical professionals that until we have a vaccine, right, that is readily available, until we ramp up testing, and we were told by the CDC just this week then unless you were to successfully be able to test about 20 million people a day, you cannot successfully reopen. Now, what else has come to my uh, come to my attention on this fuck it Friday? Not only is there a rush by Republican-led states to reopen without any fucking guidelines in place, right? Because I believe that their thinking is that, well, it doesn't matter to us. To us white folks, us white right wing, white evangelical Christians, because it's the black and Latinx population that's dying. Right. So fuck them. Right. And so, you know, I got into an argument with my family because they said I was being super callous and that that couldn't possibly be the reason. And I said, really? Because white supremacy is built on the. Um, exclusion and the eradication of people of color. And so if you have a virus that is largely killing off that population, then why would you give a fuck? You hate them anyway, right? You All of your policies, all of your actions, all of the words that you have said and used all point to that. So there's this whole, I don't give a fuck, mentality because it's not my people that are dying but trust and believe this virus doesn't know democrat from republican and it doesn't know black from white and so what is happening will in fact spread that's what viruses fucking do they will go after the most vulnerable populations and when we talk about vulnerability on woke af we are talking about economic vulnerability as well as health vulnerability we're talking about poverty being one of the indicators of whether or not you will come out of COVID alive, right? If you have pre-existing conditions because of your economic conditions, then you are more vulnerable. But what we know to be true is that this rush to reopen is not about the concern about people's public health. It's about creating a caste system of sacrifice, 
you don't give a fuck about black and brown people. So if they die at alarming rates, it's not an alarm for you, right? You'll just replace them. So we have that kind of mentality and you have to understand what the driving force is in order to create, right, policies and guidelines and conditions and campaign language around that. Republicans are not a pro-life party. There are people walking around with signs that say sacrifice the weak. Remember when Hillary Clinton referred to Trump followers, to Trumpists as deplorables? She was being too nice. They're pure fucking evil. Because I will tell you that if this pandemic, when it changes, right? When, because of the openings that are taking place in Georgia and Florida and Tennessee and Texas and other places, when the white population starts to be hit incredibly hard, because it will, all of a sudden folks will be singing a different tune. I find it so disturbing that Democrats right now are not calling Republicans out and pointing out the blatant, bold hypocrisy and just plainly calling them fucking evil. You're a murderer, right? You refuse to listen to doctors and scientists that are telling you that it is unsafe for you to reopen. You're talking about beauty parlors in Georgia and nail salons and movie theaters. Are you fucking dumb? How dumb is Brian Kemp to believe that even Donald Trump would come to his aid? As a matter of fact, he threw him all the way under the bus at one of his briefings and said, oh, no, I wouldn't do that. It's too soon. But, you know, it's up to him. This is the same man that tweeted out, liberate the states. And so now these stupid fucking governors, namely Brian Kemp, who didn't realize because I guess reading isn't part of his daily action, that you could contract the virus from somebody that was asymptomatic. How fucking long have we been saying that? Right? But they work from a political ostrich point of view, which is I will stick my head in the sand and only peek it up when you are providing information that helps me sell my case to the American people. And what they are doing is selling the American people up a river. Right? As long as you continue to be cogs in a wheel and put money in my pocket, I could give a fuck. If you lose a lung, if you stay on a ventilator, if you lose your life, so be it. You were weak anyway. That's where we are. That's the reality. There's no mincing words here. Why do you think that states are so quick to open up to? Because they want to kick you off of unemployment. Because the unemployment numbers have gone through the roof and They don't want to pay you. At the end of the day, folks, this always comes back to money. Money. I tell you that Wu-Tang told you the truth. Cash rules everything around me. That is the Republican mantra. They do not care about your health. They do not care about your well-being. As a matter of fact, what they are doing is creating and the further divisiveness of political affiliation in this country. We will not come out of this stronger, better for the wear. Mm-mm, no. We are going to come out of this more divided, more divisive, 
more volatile than anything else. For months, I've been saying that things will get bloody before they get better. And that is the absolute truth. They are willing to sacrifice you. They are willing to go to war to protect their guns and their pockets, but not your public health. Think about that when you go to pull the lever the next time in the voting booth. There is only one political party that actually gives a fuck, and it is not Republicans. Mitch McConnell shows us every day who he is, and we should, in fact, believe him. I am excited to welcome back to Woke AF Daily our regular Woke AF contributor, Ned Price, who is the Director of Policy and Communications at the National Security Action, former CIA, former uh, Special Assistant under our favorite president, the only one that we acknowledge right now, Barack Obama. Ned, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Danielle. So... The world politically seems to get murkier and murkier as the day goes on. So there are a couple of things that I wanted to chat with you about. And we'll start um, with with China and the United States is and I, I would not even the United States, but Trump, Trump and his desire to do anything for a trade deal, even if it yeah. means ignoring warning signs, ignoring data and information. It seems like the, the Trumpist Republicans have a one track mind, money above all else. Right. Um, talk to me about what you have been learning and finding about what is unfolding between the United States and China as we got into COVID and now that we are 50 some odd days in the midst. Yeah, Danielle, you know, I think the story we all know by now is that in January and February, just as this outbreak was really taking hold in China, as it was beginning to spread beyond uh, China's borders, it was President Trump who fought over his Chinese, Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping, mm-hmm. uh, by one count 15 times. You know, we've all heard and, and read these quotes um, Trump uh, praising Xi for his transparency, for the mm-hmm, effectiveness of, mm-hmm. of the response, essentially praising the mastermind of the cover-up uh, in China for doing the cover-up. But, but I think that the, the issue that's become clearer in, in recent days and weeks is that of why. Why mm-hmm. did President Trump go to such extraordinary lengths uh, to praise President Xi? And I think the answer actually is a pretty simple one, and it's one that we've heard before. Uh, what really happened is that the president, President Trump, put his own interests, his political interests in this case, uh, ahead of the national interest. Um, and what I mean by that is that when President Trump was praising Xi during this period, uh, this critical period, and I remember um, it. It was it was it was the weeks into February as we we're learning about uh, as we're learning about the virus and how it has taken uh, hold in in China and talking about. I mean, there is something that I never talk about in terms of China, and that is their transparency because they aren't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> course, everyone course, knows that. Course. No, of course. Um, and and you know the the Trump administration and President Trump now would have us believe this is all China's fault. Uh, and of course, there is accountability to be had there and, mm-hmm. that, and that we should that we should talk about. Um, but I think that the, what we also can't be blind to is the fact that our own president went along with it. And he actually uh, was complicit uh, in the Chinese cover-up because he fueled it and fanned it and, and pushed it himself. Um, he called 
Xi's response spectacular. He said the Chinese have it completely under control. Mm -hmm. I think what we now understand is that what President Trump was talking about was less Xi's coronavirus response. Um, And his words were actually uh, more about protecting this so-called trade deal uh, that was coming to fruition at this very same time. You know, Danielle, uh, Trump's phase one trade deal was signed on January 15th, mm-hmm. uh, and it was implemented in mid-February. There could not have been worse timing for this so-called trade deal from the perspective of America's public health than that, because it was precisely when uh, all of this was taking place in China and the disease began to spread uh, beyond China's borders. And I think President Trump, as he so often does, He said the quiet part out loud so many times when he would be asked about China's uh, response to coronavirus during this period. uh, He would actually uh, praise Xi and then Mm -hmm. immediately pivot to the trade deal. Uh, At at one point in this questioning, he called it, quote, probably the biggest trade deal ever made. Uh, Another time he was asked about uh, the extent of the outbreak in China. He said, we really don't know. But we're working on a a lot of things together, including trade. They'll be spending billions in our country. We have a great trade deal. Uh, And so I I think what's become clear is that President Trump knew what was happening on the ground in China. He had to know because we've learned, we've come to learn from intrepid uh, investigative reporting in some cases, that it was all over his intelligence brief uh, in January. And certainly by the end of January, it dominated his intelligence brief. He didn't not know. But what he chose to do, on the other hand, was to ignore it. Uh, And he chose to place his trade deal ahead of America's public health interest because to him, it was this political win. It was this, quote unquote, deal that he could then take to his political rallies that he could then bandy about on the campaign trail. And that's exactly what he did. Uh, Just as these warnings were coming in, he went to Ohio, had one of his massive trademark uh, uh, political rallies mm-hmm. and talked about this this trade deal. He and his campaign uh, started a series of ads based on this deal. So I think um, what we saw here was precisely what we saw in the context of impeachment. President Trump had two competing priorities, America's public health that was under threat, which he knew at the time, and his own political prospects. Uh, and to fuel those prospects, he needed a deal. When push came to shove, he prioritized that deal Uh, over America's public health, just the same way he prioritized his own political prospects by demanding uh, manufactured dirt from the Ukrainians uh, and in so doing, jeopardizing our national security with a critical partner like Ukraine. It's a story that's as old as this presidency, uh, and it's a story that is not going to go away when we have a president who is as nakedly political and partisan and transactional as this one is. Let me ask you this question because, you know, you bring up so many good points. And in uh, in a in a, an article on foreignpolicy.com uh, from a couple of days ago, they said the coronavirus sh- could upend China's uh, upend Trump's China deal. And one of the yeah. things that they say in it is that China could invoke a clause, this is directly from foreign policy uh, piece, could invoke a clause in the agreement that allows for fresh trade consultations between the two countries in the event that a natural disaster or other unforeseeable event postpones the ability of either party to verify that the clauses are, are being met, according to the commission report. And so we are in the midst where... This deal 
was for China to buy, according to this article, $200 billion worth of U.S. energy and agriculture products. Well, we know that in terms, just if we look at the agricultural side of it, we're kind of screwed right now. The farmers have been saying for weeks that they have no one to pick their crops, right? That they are they are either um, burning things or they are literally product is rotting on the vines. So how does this how how do how does how does he do this dance when not, I mean both both economies have been completely depressed because of this because of COVID. You know what's so interesting about that clause in the trade deal, Danielle? Um, I have heard and I have read that the Chinese added that clause at one of the later stages mm-hmm. of negotiations. Uh, and we there's been some reporting that our, intelli- our own intelligence community was picking up signs of, of this outbreak in China as early as November of last year. The deal wasn't finalized until and signed until January 15th. Um, I think there is, uh, at this point at least, good reason to suspect the Chinese sought to have that clause included precisely because they started to worry about the impact of of coronavirus on their economy. And they should have been worried about it uh, because we have started to see the economic impact uh, in China. Uh, Just in recent days, the Chinese announced that their first quarter GDP contracted by 6.8 percent. This was the first time in decades uh, that China... Uh, China's economy uh, had contracted the first time since 1992. Previously, there had been uh, tremendous growth by about that same amount um, on an on an annual annualized basis. And what this means, um, of course, it's bad news for China. But because of this trade deal, because President Trump made these concessions for um, this deal that was empty in the first place, it was cosmetic in the first place, mm-hmm. uh, and it wasn't even feasible in the first place, even before coronavirus, uh, now it's almost a complete certainty that the Chinese won't be able to fulfill the central element of this so-called phase one deal, and that's the purchase agreement, the, the amount they agreed to purchase uh, from U.S. farmers, from manufacturers, from others, just because their economy is shrinking. They don't have- They don't have uh, the they, resources to be able to make the purchase, but we also demand. don't have the product. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, no, that's right. So, how, so how are we pretending- how is Trump still allowed to pretend that this is a success of his administration when, in fact, everyone is saying that the deal is crumbling? It's it's a success in the same way that Trump's diplomacy with North Korea is a success. OK, it's a, it's a success the same way that Trump's renegotiated NAFTA uh, is a success. It's a success in the same way that Trump's cosmetic empty deals and negotiations have led to something that at least Trump can point to, um, uh, but is really not even worth the paper it's written on. You know, President Trump, he's he's a marketer. Uh, he built a career, built a family business by slapping his name on things that other mm-hmm. people had built. Yep. Uh, and uh, in some cases, things that um, uh, uh, did more harm than good. Trump University uh, immediately comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, we see this pattern in his foreign policy so-called accomplishments as well. It's his deals, his negotiations, uh, his so-called political wins. Uh, they amount to, in most cases, absolutely nothing. Uh, in many cases, they 
um, do nothing but tread water. And in some cases, they actually set back our interests. Uh, and I think his so-called phase one deal uh, was empty to begin with. Uh, it's even less meaningful now that neither side can really fulfill uh, the, the specifics that put forward. So we're essentially up a river without a paddle right now. And the pivots that Trump has made to begin to attack China again um, is not putting us in the best position either. So Donald Trump is looking at a huge economic loss, partly of his own making, because of his ignorance to take into account what was unfolding in China and how it was actually going to impact the United States just from a health perspective, let alone from an economic one, as he was rushing to once again put his signature on a deal to be able to tout success where success was really non-existent. That's right. That's right. It's it's a, a story, again, as, as old as this presidency. It's about creating... Uh, a narrative. It's about creating uh, a marketing buzz, creating a brand um, when the actual product is worthless. Um, uh, in this case, uh, the phase one trade deal, um, uh, key elements of it are no longer operative. Uh, but, you know, I think the for Trump, the, the sort of basis, the substance matters much less than his ability to do something with it. And by do something with it, what he wants to do more than anything else is use it as political fodder, to be able to invoke it on the campaign trail, to have something to point to, to have something, uh, to have an applause line at a political rally. And uh, the the fact of many of these things, whether it's his trade one deal, uh, phase one deal, whether it's his negotiations with North Korea, what's it, whether it's his Afghanistan peace deal, uh, whether it is his approach to a disastrous approach to Iran, uh so forth and so on. The fact is that uh, the details are not uncomplicated. Mm -hmm. And Donald Trump, for all of his faults, um, is a master at delivering uh, the tagline, delivering uh, the, the marketing um, ploy. And uh, that's all his his base, his supporters want to hear. And right. Donald they, Trump all they want uh, is, the, is all they deliver. all they want is the show. Exactly. None of it, but but none of none of the substance. Right. Like all they want is is the pomp and the circumstance, which is what how he won the White House. So, Ned, given all of this disaster and where where we are, where this looks, where this deal looks like it's going, that it's crumbling, we can't trust the Chinese government. We can't actually trust our own government to do what's right for the people of this country. What does this relationship look like over the over the coming weeks? Well, in some ways, I think we're almost in a position to have to write off this president with the Chinese um, because his approach uh, is so short-sighted, so transactional um, that I think there's very little hope uh, that we take a better path with the Chinese uh, as long as Donald Trump is in office. I do think, um, starting with the next president, knock on wood, uh, early next year, mm -hmm. um, we'll, we'll have an opportunity to recognize that this caricature of confrontation or concession uh, it's not a binary that with the Chinese, our relationship has to be multifaceted. We have to recognize there are going to be areas of confrontation and areas of competition, human rights, trade, mm -hmm, cyber, mm -hmm. uh, regional security issues in the South China Sea and, and uh, other maritime security issues. But there also has to be and have to be areas of cooperation. Uh, 
the Chinese are uh, not an unimportant uh, player in the region and beyond. And we have to recognize that when it comes to challenges like global health, like climate change, like non-proliferation, uh, and, and so forth, the Chinese have to be uh, part of the answer. We have to work with them uh, where we can. Uh, we have to manage our differences and maximize areas of cooperation constructively. This isn't a president who has demonstrated the ability uh, to do anything that's multidimensional, certainly not with the Chinese. Uh, and so I'm pretty pessimistic about uh, what can take place in the next few weeks. I'm pessimistic about what can take place uh, in the next few months. Um, but I am hopeful that we'll have a, be able to chart a new path uh, with a new president next year. It's just amazing that, you know, it was his business acumen, right, uh, that many uplifted as what was go what was his differentiating factor from the field of Republicans back in 2016. And and I'm like, did did no one see his failed businesses? Has no did no one know that, like you had said at the beginning, all he has ever done is slap his name on things that other people have already built, that he actually never built anything, never created anything. Um, and even the author, the true author of the art of the deal said so he's a razzle dazzle. He's a, he, he is the razzle dazzle. That's what he's good at. Um, and unfortunately in this political climate, like that's all that matters that you get a reality TV show host, you get a reality TV show. Um, and unfortunately we're all on survivor, uh, in, in switching gears a bit, I just want to ask you about the recent fights that are unfolding between the federal government and the states. It is as if we are moving into a new era where states are on their own. We're no longer the United States. Governor Cuomo has gotten on television this week and talked about Mitch McConnell referring to the funding of New York, right, and other states that are hard hit by the virus as a blue state bailout, mm -hmm. right, and politicizing this moment and essentially saying that we don't care if people die as long as it's Democrats. That's essentially yeah. what the... I just... I am so undone by this. I shouldn't be surprised. And every time I think that there is not another low that we can go to, they manage to um, exceed my expectations. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think there are two things going on here. One is uh, this politicization of a virus. And I think we've heard so much about how uh, a virus isn't foreign, a virus isn't domestic, uh, in these sort of racist and xenophobic tropes that we heard from the president, we heard from some, some of his senior advisors about this so-called Chinese virus, as they tried mm -hmm. to label it. Now we're, we're hearing that the virus is Republican or a, a Democrat, mm -hmm. uh, and that is uh, equally false. The, the virus can't be red, the virus can't be blue, it can't even be purple. It's a virus. Um, and, you know, it's, it's remarkable to hear Mitch McConnell um, talk about uh, the red states bailing out the blue states for a couple reasons. Number one, uh, obviously, there's a consistent redistribution of wealth in this country from blue states to red yep. states. But that's really unimportant, uh, and, and I don't think we need to harp on that uh, in, in this point. Uh, I think the more important point is that the federal government is there for a reason. Uh, and obviously, we have a federal system. Uh, there is an arrangement between the federal government and the states. But I think what we're seeing play out and, and President Trump and those around him have epitomized this consistently, is this 
um, sort of belief on the part of the administration, especially on the part of the president and his family members, that, uh, you know, the president is sort of this Louis XIV character. There is mm-hmm. no distinction between the president and the state, and the president pulls all the levers, um, and everything within the state belongs to him. I was, I, my mouth was on the floor when I heard Jared Kushner uh, say something to the effect of, you know, these are our ventilators. Our ventilators. I, I almost died. Our it, ventilators. It's it's really remarkable um, uh, in the way that the president and his son-in-law, in this case, have seem to have appropriated all of the resources of the state um, and thinking that it's theirs to dole out at their whim, uh, not based on the needs and the demands of the American people who are suffering in these states. And, and not to take it back to impeachment again, but but there is something remarkably consistent in the way this president thinks about the resources of the federal government, the resources of the United States of America. Remember, he, the President Trump uh, had at his disposal, tried to leverage and exploit nearly $400 million mm-hmm. in taxpayer mm-hmm. funds uh, to essentially buy or mm-hmm. blackmail or extort the Ukrainians into manufacturing dirt on Vice President Joe Biden and his son. Um, this is something that and, – and Mick Mulvaney would have us believe that it's something the administration does all the all time. All the time. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it was shocking to hear it in the case of coronavirus and ventilators. But it unfortunately has been a theme that has that has crept into so much of what this administration has tried to do in terms of both its domestic policy vis-a-vis the states, vis-a-vis other priorities, and in its foreign policy as we discussed. I just, you know, I got to tell you, Ned, and and maybe you're a bit more hopeful than I am. I don't know how it is going to be possible to right these incredible wrongs. The fact that we've gotten to a place in our politics where the Senate majority leader is essentially saying that it is fine for people to die because they are from a different political party. I don't know how anyone whether, it, you know, if it's obviously our our only chance is Biden, as he is the presumptive nominee, I don't know how he wraps his arms around how far we have fallen as a country. I don't know how you, you know, aside from turning your back on our foreign allies, you have also, as the federal government, turned your back on your own goddamn states, Right. And so I, I just, I don't know, and maybe, maybe you have an idea. I just don't know how, how you, how you write the ship on that, how you, how you get rid of this level of, I mean, callousness is not, is not even the best descriptor for, for what they are showing. The Republican party is showing towards states right now. Um, it's pure evil, honestly. You know, it's interesting you bring that up. I, I teach at Georgetown, and, and uh, part and parcel of, of the class is a look at, at Watergate um, and some of the abuses that took place in that context. And, um, of course, there are similarities uh, between the abuses we saw then and what we've seen during this presidency. Uh, and the point that, that I make is that coming out of Watergate, mm-hmm. um, the American people had a tremendous resource in the form of Capitol Hill, in the form of Congress, because Congress took it upon itself in a bipartisan fashion uh, to form legislation and to put forward reforms um, that uh, helped us to ensure that President Nixon's behavior was seen as an aberration. 
Um, we, we installed inspectors general uh, throughout the government. We reformed our surveillance laws. We made reforms to our intelligence and law enforcement communities, essentially taking a holistic look at everything President Richard Nixon did, everything he abused, and finding legislative fixes for that to ensure that another president couldn't do precisely that, and also to reinforce the norms that he violated. Of course, uh, this period is not dissimilar from Watergate in some ways, but the Congress we have today mm-hmm. versus the Congress mm-hmm. that we had in the post-Watergate era um, is entirely different. And to think of bipartisan reforms uh, coming out of the Trump presidency uh, to reinforce norms that should be basic rules of thumb to Republicans uh, and Democrats alike, that American taxpayer funds can't be used for extortive uh, purposes, that the resources of the state don't belong to the president, that the president can't intervene in investigations, uh, so forth and so on. Um, you cannot imagine anything close to that coming out of uh, the Republican-led uh, Senate and the Republicans in the House uh, that we have now. We are lucky uh, in the midst of a crisis uh, to be able to find um, uh, limited points of agreement about essentially salvaging the American economy, uh, ensuring that millions upon millions of Americans uh, aren't uh, left without their entire livelihoods. Uh, but beyond that, I, I have very low hopes for what is possible coming out of Congress, uh, and especially uh, in a post-Trump era, uh, if the Republicans were to have to admit that perhaps uh, their president, the one they supported to the hilt, uh, was not the paragon of virtue and leadership uh, uh, that they have uh, portrayed throughout this period. Yeah, I just, I, I mean, my feeling on that is, you know, again, hindsight will be twenty twenty, but you, legislative fixes, to your point, would never work now, right? Because yep. we can't trust the Senate. Um, and so unless... There is a major blue tsunami that sweeps in, keeps the House, wins the Senate and the White House. I don't foresee bipartisanship in terms of a fix, because in order to fix a problem, you would have to admit there was a problem. Absolutely. And we are not in a space uh, or time when Republicans will admit anything. Uh, And so it's just one big gaslighting uh, event after another. And so until we can come face to face with what exactly has happened and transpired to our country, uh, I don't see how we make sure that a a Trump and Trumpism doesn't happen again. Couldn't agree more. Ned, thank you as always for joining Woke AF Daily. I appreciate your insights so, so very much, even though they depress me more (laughs) when we get off the phone uh, than than I actually want to be. But folks need to pay attention to all of the moving pieces. Well, thanks, Danielle. It's always always a pleasure, even if it is equally depressing on my end. (laughs) Well... Uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and and safe travels to you um, this week and this weekend. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Very excited to welcome back to Woke AF Daily, Glenn Kirshner, MSNBC legal analyst and former 30-year federal prosecutor. Glenn, good morning. Good morning, Danielle. So... 
there was news yesterday, as there is every day. Um, but in this case, my eyebrows raised a bit, probably about a foot off of my face, when I saw that William Barr, uh, U.S. Attorney General, is saying that he's going to use or will use or can use the power of the Department of Justice to go after governors over their own social distancing uh, guidelines around COVID-19. How is that possible? Um, I think the short answer is it's not. Um, It's really not a thing. And if I still have the capacity to be amused these days, I would be amused by this because how often have we heard the Republican ideologues, the so-called federalists, yell and scream about states' rights mm-hmm. and about how the federal government you know, is evil and overreaching and particularly Barack Obama can't do this and he can't do that because – It's a state's rights issue. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing. Often, you know, I would say in theory, they are correct that the states are the ones with most of the power and most of the rights, given the way our federal government is constructed. I mean, the Tenth Amendment says basically the rights of the federal government are very few and they're enumerated in the Constitution. The rights of the states are unlimited. Um, So Bill Barr, you know, this is just another bully tactic, and it's probably another diversionary move to try to draw attention away from the fact that President Trump, in a way that, in my opinion, is criminal, is killing Americans. I just don't under, I don't understand this Republican Party. And I don't understand them because it seems that they are on the side of everything that is opposite to what was foundational to their ideology. Exactly. And and, and I don't know how I don't know how we reconcile that, and I don't know how they are reconciling that with themselves. I I don't understand how William Barr, on one hand, <clears throat> can disregard. Uh, the voices of actual protesters who, for instance, were protesting police brutality, like those in Black Lives Matter, and get up before a a dinner party and essentially say that, well, if you don't like the police, right, they don't have to protect you. That's what he said with regard to black and brown communities that were protesting uh, against police brutality and the recognition of their humanity. Then you have white right-wing protesters with AR-15s marching up the steps of capitals around this country, capital buildings around this country, saying that they don't want to believe in social distancing. They don't believe in COVID. They think it's all a hoax. I wonder where they got that from. And nothing is happening to them. And instead, William Barr is deciding to go after governors because they are governors that are Democrats. How do we return from this, Glenn? We return from it, in my opinion, by uh, once a law-abiding president takes over in January and appoints a law-enforcing attorney general, we go about sort of methodically but with boundless energy and determination – undoing all of the 
crimes of the past four years committed by our government officials, both appointed and elected, and their family members. And we restore the, the institutions to the sort of decency that I think they enjoyed in, you know, in the years before Trump. We restore the rule of law. We unpack the courts. We saw another story today about McConnell saying no vacancy will be left behind, which mm-hmm. I thought was equal parts cute and evil. The mm-hmm. cute was the praising part. We unpack the courts, which can absolutely be done honestly and ethically by simply investigating the appointment process that led to each of these judges being nominated. And then more importantly, their confirmation hearing testimony, because if you scrub that testimony for lies, you will find lies. We saw Kavanaugh's lies in real time on live TV that we don't let that lie. We don't let that go unaddressed. This is not revenge and it's not political payback. It's nothing more than um, uh, fulfilling the rule of law, albeit in a slightly delayed fashion. We will do it and we can do it, not for politics, but because it's the right thing to do by the American people. So we will unravel all this. We will get after it. It's just going to have to wait until January. You know, my fear here, though, is what happened with the Bush administration and lying about weapons of mass destruction and taking us into a war in Iraq that we didn't need to be in. Right. Like my fear is that we actually do as a party. Right. Let things lie. And I don't know, you know, and, 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 and I have other folks that have come on the show and they say, well, you know, Democrats want to always take the high road and they mm-hmm. don't want to play politics. And any time that a Republican goes after them and says that they are playing politics, then they back off of the case. And right. I don't believe that we actually get right as a country on this on the right path. Right. Where, where laws matter and the Constitution matters unless we do something about Donald Trump and this entire administration. I agree. I absolutely agree. So uh, two thoughts. One is I'm midway through the book that is the it's called The Prosecution of George W. Bush for Murder by Vincent Pugliosi, who was the, you know, the famous um, uh, Manson prosecutor out in California. And um, I've read a number of his books. Um, And he sets out a pretty compelling case for why George Bush committed crimes and should be held accountable for them. And um, I think that makes a pretty compelling case. But I think there is a a 10 times more compelling case to be made against Donald Trump for, at a minimum, um, negligent homicide or involuntary manslaughter for what he is doing to the American people at this moment, um, killing them off as a result of his at a minimum, rampant incompetence. Mm-hmm. So I think we we have. I agree with you that there is a strong inclination to turn the other cheek, let bygones be bygones, and put the long national nightmare behind us once the wrongdoers are no longer in power. But here's the example that I've, I've used to try to drive home how this is. It's not about being vindictive for political reasons. It's about um, it's about you know abiding by the law. Let's assume that. One of Donald Trump's – let's make it – I don't know. I don't want to – let's make it Don Jr. Mm -hmm. Don Jr. commits a bank robbery, 
right? Mm-hmm. And a bank robbery is a federal offense because, you know, unlike the robbery of a 7-Eleven or an IHOP, um, because the money deposited in a bank is federally insured, that makes a bank robbery a federal crime, which is why the FBI and not local law enforcement investigates a bank robbery. So let's assume Don Jr. tomorrow robs a bank. And he's caught on videotape, and Mm -hmm. he leaves his fingerprints on a scene, and he's identified by the bank teller. And Bill Barr takes a look at it and says, yeah, you know what? I I think the evidence is deficient in some way. I'm not going to prosecute Donald Trump Jr. Now, Mm -hmm. we all know that that would be because he is Donald Trump Sr.'s lawyer, so he's not going to go after one of Donald Trump's family members. So now Donald Trump gets voted out of office. And Biden is in and a law abiding attorney general is now presiding. Would it be vindictive? Would it be politically motivated if we said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Just because Don Jr. got a pass for crimes he plainly committed while his father was president, we don't think it's right to hold him accountable for the bank robbery now that it's January and a new administration is in power. I think most people would say, BS, the dude mm-hmm. needs to be held accountable, right? And that wouldn't be vindictive and it wouldn't be politically motivated. It would just be the right thing to do by the American people, by the bank, by the community, by everybody. And it's no different here because some of these crimes are sort of political in nature. Many of them aren't. A lot of it is just outright theft and bribery and witness intimidation and obstruction of justice. You know, so they need to be held accountable regardless. And it's not about who's in power. They need to be held accountable. I mean, I agree. I agree. I just feel like history is going to repeat itself in the worst way. And I keep thinking to myself, what do we set up with administrations to follow if nothing is done about the Trump administration, if nothing is done about William Barr blatantly going after Australia in the same way that Trump went after the Ukraine for to interfere, right, to interfere in, in, in the United States? On their behalf, I I just feel like if we don't do something, if this uh, Southern District of New York doesn't do something, right, Mm -hmm. then how do we get back together as a country? How do we believe in our agencies, in our government again? That's that's my fear. Yeah, we don't and we can't because you don't heal by declining to prosecute crime. You don't heal by declining to hold wrongdoers accountable by declining to vindicate the rights of the victim or by declining to protect the community. You don't heal. You basically make matters worse. We didn't heal after Nixon. Instead, Mm. we gave Mm -hmm. birth to Donald Trump. If we don't hold Donald Trump and Bill Barr and the other criminals accountable, we won't heal. What we will do is give birth to the next thing that's 10 times worse than Donald Trump. And I can't even imagine I can't what imagine. is 10 times worse than Donald Trump. I, I, I honestly cannot imagine what could possibly uh, be worse than Donald Trump. And because I know that the country wouldn't survive. I, I like just in the same way that I honestly believe that if Donald Trump is not voted out in November, if mm-hmm. if he wins another four years, steals another four years, America is done. The rule yeah. of law is done. And, yep. you know, you, you talked, you, you mentioned earlier uh, involuntary manslaughter. Just tell the listeners what that actually means. Sure. That's um, it, it, it's as a, so for 
30 years I was a prosecutor, 22 of those years I was a homicide prosecutor. So I kind of know my way around a homicide charge. And I was also chief of homicide at the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, responsible for overseeing all murder prosecutions in the city. So if it's if there's one thing I kind of know a little bit about, it's homicide. What Donald Trump has done is basically at a minimum, the lowest level of criminal homicide in our in our system. And it's called different things in different jurisdictions. Sometimes it's called involuntary manslaughter. Sometimes it's called negligent homicide. But the label doesn't matter. Here's what the lowest level of criminal homicide involves. If you do something, you take some act and you do it in a grossly negligent manner, you do it in a way that's really reckless. Or if you have a duty to take some action, like being president of the United States and reasonably protecting the American people, if you have a duty to act and you fail to act and that failure is reckless or a product of gross negligence, that is element one of the crime of involuntary manslaughter. The second element is if your if your grossly negligent act or failure to act has is reasonably likely to cause harm to another, either serious bodily harm or death. Mm -hmm. That's the second element. And then the third element is thereby, if you grossly act or fail to act, it's reasonably uh, calculated to hurt another and you thereby cause the death of another. That's the third element. You're guilty of involuntary manslaughter. Now, causing the death of another sounds like, oh, well, that means you have to shoot somebody or strangle right, somebody or right. stab somebody. But the law of causation, and this is critically important when we're talking about Donald Trump's criminal liability for these, these deaths that are going on every day. The law of causation says if your conduct, your action or failure to act is a substantial factor in bringing about the death of another, then you have caused their death in the eyes of the law. So it's not the bullet or the knife or the ligature. It is that your act is a substantial factor in bringing about death. And here's there was a report yesterday, and I think I retweeted it, and a news article where somebody died of COVID. Mm -hmm. And that person, uh, I think he was a bar owner in New York, and he had been saying, listen, I am going to make, and I'm paraphrasing here, I'm mm -hmm. going to make my everyday behavioral decisions based on what Donald Trump has said. He said it's a hoax. He said we have nothing to worry about. He said it's going to clear up. He says it's all hype. So I'm not, I'm not going to mask up. I'm not going to socially distance. I'm not going to do any of that because Donald Trump, and he literally, Donald Trump isn't wearing a mask. So he went out. He mingled. He, co he contracted the virus, and he died. Donald Trump's conduct was a substantial factor in bringing about that gentleman's death. I will take a, an involuntary manslaughter case into court every day of the week for the rest of my life if given the opportunity and juries i believe will hold donald trump accountable wow okay you know it, it sounds to me if we were to actually follow the law then donald trump is liable for the deaths of many americans right that decided yep. that they are going because when have they lived in a time when they couldn't take the word of the president of the United States? Exactly. As as emboldened by Fox News. Listen, Americans and everybody's like, oh, these darn MAGAs. I don't call them names and I don't get down on them. Do I disagree with the, their their ideology to the extent they have it? And their 
conduct, yes. But here's the thing. These folks are, are entitled to believe what the president says, and they're entitled to believe what Fox News says. Even if both of those people and outlets are lying to them, they're still sitting there listening to it, and they should be entitled to make their behavioral decisions based on what they're hearing from the president and Fox mm -hmm, News. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's killing them, mm -hmm. and they either don't realize it or they don't care, but it's killing them. But the fact that they're entitled to take that advice from the president you know, makes the president responsible for their deaths. Wow. You know, I one of the questions that I have, too, um, is around these quote-unquote protesters, right? Ooh. And the fact that they're not being arrested. Um, the fact that they are just openly um, harassing police openly uh, in many ways, gathering in all of these uh, white supremacist uh, chat rooms, mm -hmm. um, calling for a second civil war. Um, what is going to be done about these people? And the fact that like this, this kind of hatred is rising uh, and it has its deep roots uh, in this administration. And they're willingly, knowingly, harming other people by going out into public. What, if anything, is going to happen? And what, if any, recourse do these governors have in the states where they are having these protests? What what action, legal action, can they take? Yeah, so here is, um, here's where, as, uh, as a career prosecutor, I've seen both sides of this coin. Now, if you'll think back to Donald Trump's inauguration, there were lots and lots of protests in Washington, D.C., some of which erupted in violence. There was, you know, looting and burning of vehicles and storefronts and whatnot. And my former office um, was involved in the prosecution of lots and lots of those protesters. Uh, I think we lost every single case, and I think we ultimately ended up dismissing those cases that we decided after losing so many cases weren't worth pursuing because of the trend um, of acquittals. And here's what I'll say. We, and, you know, regardless of how I feel about the cause that is inspiring the protest, we have a right to protest in mm -hmm. this country. And I, I not only recognize it, I protect it because it was my job as a prosecutor to protect people's rights to protest and, you know, honor their first amendment rights. But if they cross the line during that protest into criminal conduct, then they need to be held accountable for that. But as you know, that's a delicate balance right there. So do I think that these people who are out there protesting governors who are trying to save their lives make any sense whatsoever? No, it seems to me idiotic that you're protesting the fact that somebody's trying to keep you and your family mm -hmm. safe, right? But they have a right to protest. Now, the really unknown here and, and what I think is entirely unprecedented is their protest might be putting might be putting people in harm's way in ways other than setting a vehicle on fire or looting a storefront. Right. Those are obvious crimes. But here they're not socially distancing. So maybe theoretically they're putting other people's mm -hmm. health at risk. That, I can tell you, Danielle, becomes an extraordinary challenge okay. for both law enforcement and for prosecutors to deal with because you have to balance not only their First Amendment right to protest against 
you know, the, the, the public safety need to protect against violent crime, you have this sort of middle ground of, well, what is the crime? If the crime is that they're potentially breathing on somebody else, if they're infected, how do you go about proving that in court? It makes for a morass of a prosecution. Got it. Even though I would like all of these people arrested, um, yeah. it would go against our ability as a people to be able to gather and protest. So right. I understand that it's just the idiocy of it uh, yeah. should be illegal um, yeah. in in general. Glenn Kirshner, thank you so much for joining us each week to bring us the legal perspective on what is transpiring in the Trump administration because it is so much. And so just continue keeping us informed and, and coming back. And please do stay safe during these egregious times. Yeah, you stay safe as well. Thank you. All right, folks, that is it for me today on Woke AF Daily. As always, power to the people and to all the people power. Get woke and stay woke as fuck. Remember, we are running a two for one special with Woke AF and my new weekly podcast PM Mood where I interview innovators, activists, change makers and a bunch of brilliant folks that I bring to you every Tuesday. When you subscribe to PM Mood, you get Woke AF free in your feed daily. So make sure that you share this with your friends. We need to get the word out. Have a safe and healthy weekend, friends. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal History. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit LambdaLegal.org. That's LambdaLegal.org. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe Ventilation System exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe Ventilation System. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today.